Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Hello and welcome back to the show. So today I'm talking to David Shelley, who is a book publisher, who is Chief Executive Officer of Hachette UK, the second largest trade publisher in the country. In January 2024, David will also become CEO of Hachette's United States division. So two huge jobs. This conversation is really all about being a CEO, how to become one and what it takes once you're there. Expect to learn about the importance of getting comfortable with discomfort, of being truly self-reflective, of identifying what's going to have the biggest impact and the vital importance of learning to say no. Now, I was talking to David at the Future Book Conference 2023, which I've just left, which is why I'm recording this outside. I really enjoyed enjoy chatting to David. He's clearly a real people person. And I got to say, I'm really grateful as well to David because he introduced me to the concept of being an omnivert, which is where you need human connection. You crave it as well as time by yourself, something that really rang true for me and may ring true for you too. Now, this was a fun conversation. It definitely flowed. And I really hope you enjoy listening. David Shelley, how lovely to see you. How are you? I'm good. It's, I'm good. It's nice to be here. It's nice to be talking to you here. It's lovely to have you on the Life Lessons podcast in front of a live audience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, always fun. You can kind of heckle, can't you? <laughs> no, not yet. Yeah. 
Now, listen, David, it's an exciting time for you. You're obviously CEO of Hashet UK currently, but come January, you're going to be running up the US operation too. So two things. First of all, congratulations. Thank you. And secondly, clearly you like a challenge. I do. Um, yeah, I, I think it will be. It will be a challenge. And I'm you know, excited and I'm daunted in equal measure. Uh, but I do like a challenge. I like to do something new. I've always loved the US. I've always loved um, US publishing. I've got lots of friends there. Uh, lots of my favourite authors are there. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Was it an opportunity you sought out or did the stars align and it come to you, so to speak? I think, this, let's say, the stars aligned. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a period of change, I would say, in, in publishing generally. We can talk a bit, a bit about that later. Um, and I think in any creative business, it's good for there to be some sort of change at some point. I kind of thrive on change. Um, so I think everything sort of came together and it, and it felt like the right thing to do. And um, yeah, I'm excited about it. Why do you think your leadership skills have been recognised? Um, that's a really difficult question to answer without sound, sounding uh, conceited and awful. Can't um, to one side I, and just uh, go for it. Um, I think I would say my leadership skills are well suited to this industry. I was thinking about it, and I think there's lots of industries where I would not be well suited. So I would say I have um, sort of decent communication skills, and I love books, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm quite a creative person, quite a commercial person. That that sort of set of skills, I guess, suits me for publishing. I think you know. I did a business course a few years ago and I was with CEOs from other different industries and it was really clear to me that I would not thrive in banking at all. Like, I would be terrible. There was a guy from a, the, the American Lottery. I would not thrive in that industry. There was someone from power. I would not thrive in the power industry. Uh, you know, sort of um, electric, electricity. I would not thrive in the electricity industry. But there's, so there's, some, there's something about this industry that I feel very grateful, I suppose, that I went into an industry that A, I love, and B, that I think I can be helpful in and, and I think there's tons of things that I wouldn't be and I wouldn't thrive and I wouldn't be any good and I, I feel fortunate to have gone into an industry where I think that the things that I enjoy the things I'm good at um, actually work. We were speaking just before we started recording about the archetype CEO and I was watching a documentary last night uh, with Alan Sugar in it and I think like he is someone who comes to mind, you know, someone a bit shouty who you imagine, well, as he says, you know, you're fired, that type of thing. How do you think the, the archetype of the CEO has changed and, you know, how do you see your place within the way it has evolved? I think there is an archetype that actually has changed very quickly. So when I came into publishing in 1997, there was definitely CEOs at that point. It was a suit and tie, like, and it was a man, and it was mm. probably a straight man, or if he wasn't a straight man, he pretended to be a straight man. Mm. Like, like that, was, that, that was what the CEO was. And definitely things have loosened up a lot over the last uh, few years. I mean, you know, I think a lot of it is down to some of the kind of West Coast businesses, the entrepreneurial... Uh, spirit of you know sort of Apple and Google and Facebook and things like that and the leaders there where it's really about sort of the job that they're doing rather than their persona or the sort of um, 
for want of a better word, sort of alpha male type character. Uh, I remember someone complained to me that I wasn't enough like, do you know Gianni Agnelli? I don't. Who is like a very autocratic, kind of uh, probably brilliant, but Italian mid-20th century business person, but very much fit the mould of what a a CEO was. Um, I can't be that person. So I was always really conscious of that. And, and I thought, actually, when I joined the industry, I kind of thought that, well, it, it kind of rules me out for anything like that. I didn't think of it as a career aspiration, but I just thought, well, that's not me. Um, and I feel quite lucky, I suppose, that society's kind of caught up. And now you can be all sorts of things mm. and be a CEO. It's about the results that you, that you drive. The, you know, it's, it's about the results of the business. You don't need to be a particular way. Okay, and I want to dig into some more of your leadership lessons, your life lessons, but we've got to do a little bit of a potted history of how you've arrived here and soon to be in, in Manhattan. So you started out at a little place called Allison and Busby, right, as a crime editor? Um, it was really an editorial assistant. It was, right. uh, well, it, yeah, it was, it was advertised as ed- editorial assistant come dog's body. So that's <laughs> what I started out as. And did you do that classic thing where you went above and beyond, got there early, stayed late, made the coffees? Like, how did you make such an impression so quickly? I don't know. I t- did I do that stuff? I, I, was, I remember being very, very impatient and sort of... Um, uh, keen to start contributing more than making the tea and taking letters and, you know, doing what, writing stuff in ledgers and things like that. I, like, I, I was very hungry, I suppose. And how did you convey that? Um, I think I, I did a lot of reading in my spare time. So, like, if there were ever manuscripts around, I would hoover them up because um, I was really, I mean, in a very stereotypical way, I was very, very keen to commission books. Um, so, so I would do a lot of, I would do a lot of reading. I, I also actually, even on the first day there, I remember someone showed me, there was like a sort of, I think faxes were common in those days. And like, so there was an endless fax that came through every morning with all the sales figures on. I was absolutely transfixed by this thing. It's like, wow, that book sold that many copies, that book sold that many copies. And it's sort of, as a child, I was always into like the Guinness Book of Records and it's just like geeky, um, sort of, um, numbersy the things like that and I was like wow this is amazing to, to to connect up these two things like all these books that I love and then all these kind of numbers and like what's the bestseller and what's the worst seller and I remember actually my first week I compiled like a list of bestsellers which which it was a very small company so it's like five people so no one had done that before and I was like well these these are the books that sold really really well and I was just interested in it. I don't think it served much purpose. Okay, so you weren't, you weren't seeking to necessarily um, show off, let's say, by doing that. That was a genuine passion. Yeah, yeah, just... yeah. I was just really, really interested. And do you think really that's interested. what they zeroed in on when they identified you as, as someone capable of taking over the business at the age of, what, 23? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I did also... I had a meeting with a guy, this amazing guy called Javier Mole, who owned the company. He was a Spanish business person. And he came over sort of once a year or something. I had an audience with him when I was assistant. And he said, sort of, tell me about yourself. And I, I said, I'm very ambitious. And the, when the words came out of my mouth, it's like, it's not something I'd ever thought before. I was like, where did those words come from? Where did that come from? But I guess I must have been, like, I must have, something in me must have felt that I wanted to convey that to him. And I wanted to, I wanted to do that. Um, but it wasn't, it, wasn't anything sort of con- it wasn't anything kind of conscious. It was just like, I want to do something. I want to create something. That's interesting. So where, you've mentioned impatience and ambition already. Where do you think those traits come from? Um, I don't know. Uh, 
it's maybe a sort of, I mean, I've always been a bit restless, I suppose. I think anyone who knows me would sort of say I'm not very good at sitting, literally sitting still. This is, I'm sitting still here because I have to, um, <laughs> because, because we have to do this. But, um, but, but I'm not naturally someone who's great at, at doing that. Right. So I suppose I always like to be moving and doing things. And it's just maybe a character trait or something like that. Right. And you can't pinpoint it to any uh, formative childhood experience. I don't think so. I just always, I suppose I always like to be moving around and uh, kind of doing, doing stuff and creating stuff as well. We did skip over something that I, I wanted to mention that was helpful for you in that you were born above a bookshop. But at the same time, that didn't necessarily mean at that time that you had your site set on publishing, though. No, but it was just, so my parents ran a second-hand bookshop and we lived in the flat above the shop. Um, and I, I think what it did mean is just, I felt so, books were just everything, really, I suppose, for the whole family. Um, like, I'm not even the biggest reader in the family. One of my sisters could polish off, like, two books a day uh, <laughs> easily. Wow. So, so and, and I, I can't read it at that sort of rate. We were just a family of massive readers, <laughs> massive book lovers. So, to some extent, it was almost like maybe a lack of imagination. I couldn't really imagine something that didn't involve books in some way. Yeah. Like, like, you know, so books were just central. And, and, and as well as having the shops, so we'd go downstairs um, ransack the children's section of the shop. I read everything, all these Victorian children's, weird Victorian children's books, um, and then go to the library and max out my library card. And to be fair, a lot of people in publishing, a lot of people sitting in this room have similar stories like that. That is our lives. We all love, love books. Sure. And are you still a voracious reader of books? Because that requires you to sit still. It does, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that does, doesn't it? And I do, when it comes to a book, I think I do have good concentration. Right. Something, is, it, is it almost meditative then for you? Yeah, I think it, I think it is. I've never really analysed it in that way, but I suppose it is. I suppose it's the, the one thing that does it, does kind of hook me and kind of... Uh, just Ground you. Ground, it's very, yeah, very grounding. I think books do, as we all know here, books do something that nothing else does. Well, it's very true, actually. I, I interviewed someone about flow, about getting in flow and sport, extreme sports, all those things that lead to being in flow. But reading is the apparently the most easy way to get into time, oh, really? to lose your sense of, of time and, and your narrative self. Anyway, back to Alison and Busby. So you, you were 23 when you were given the top job. They obviously saw something in you. I mean, it was the top job in a company of five people. So, so it's like, yeah. Top job so we, top job. Let's not pick this up too much, <laughs> but yes. It's still a very impressive achievement. Now, they obviously saw something in you. Did you have doubts about your ability to do the job at that stage? Oh, I was petrified. Like, I have to say, I've never been so scared in my life. And as scared as I am about this new change going to New York, I, would, I know I will never be as scared professionally as I was the first year there. Right. I was absolutely bricking here. And um, how did you manage that fear then? And how did it, how did it show up? You, I mean, was it anxiety? Were you thoughts of, oh my God, I'm going to be, you know, imposter syndrome-y type? Oh stuff? yeah, I mean, it wasn't even, it wasn't, yeah. I mean, it went deeper than imposter syndrome because I've not really done very much at that stage. I published three or four books and one or two of them had done pretty well, which was, I guess, why this guy in Spain um, sort of thought I could do that you know, thought I could handle it. But I didn't know that. I'd not got any business background whatsoever. Um, I got like a B in maths GCSE, and then that was a miracle. So I didn't have any sort of 
you know, I, th there was nothing in myself that thought, yeah, I can do this, I can, I can handle it. I'd right. said very boldly to him a couple of years beforehand, I'm ambitious. It's like, what the hell, why the hell was I saying that? <laughs> um, I didn't know anything about running a business. I mean, I was very fortunate that there were people that he had in his organisation who taught me an awful lot in a short space. So the other thing I would say is that book publishing is not difficult in terms of the way the business operates. You want to sell as many books as you can um, and to be as lean as you can as an organisation to do that and not to, not, to try, not spend, you know, to spend as much money as you need to to sell those books but not to, not to waste money. It's quite simple. So that I, sounds I, complicated to me. I mean, that's put simply, but I mean, there's nuance within that, right? <laughs> I, I think it's not like there are some industries where you would really need to have a very deep financial knowledge and understanding in order to really grasp it and thrive. Okay, right. um, I, I, in publishing, yeah, it's not, I, I don't want to underplay, I don't want to say no. it's easy, but, but, but the principles are actually reasonably simple ones. It's, it's about selling a lot of books. And what's the key? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think, I, think I, I went into publishing thinking it was about, you know, loving books and loving literature and finding good books, and it is about all those things. I think marketing is absolutely key to the whole thing. Whatever, you know, sometimes it's sort of overt marketing, like, you know, newspaper ads or whatever. But I think what was really apparent to me very early on was like such a cliche, but the cover of the covers of books. Really? So, you know, when, certainly when I took over at Alison Busby, the, the, the covers weren't a, a massive feature. And I could see that as a small publisher, we just didn't have money to spend on press ads or anything like that. What we could do. I suppose it's with not just covers with the titles and positioning and blurbs on the back and all of that. These are sort of the levers. And I would go into sort of Waterstones and Dylan's and Borders at the time and just look at people looking at books and the books that really stood out and the books that didn't stand out. Really? Um, so I suppose if I've got any sort of answer to, to it, I mean, it's so simplistic, but like, you know, obviously really good books, but then really well positioned and packaged as well. That's interesting. Okay. In your role as boss at Alison and Busby. Your second week, you had a baptism of proper fire, didn't you? So just explain briefly what happened and the feelings that you experienced. So, so this will make sense to anyone of my era and older, and will sound ridiculous probably to anyone else, but um, there was this thing in, 19, in the late 1990s where everyone, because of the millennium coming, computers hadn't reckoned with the concept of there being the year 2000. So this sounds so nuts when I say it. So basically they, they discovered, oh God, computers had never, no one who, who did computers had ever thought that the year 2000 might actually come along. So then all computers in the world had to be made millennium compliant. This was a huge undertaking. It doesn't sound like a big thing now, but at the time it was absolutely seismic. We had a distributor at the time, Alison and Busby, and they were making their machines Millennium compliant, and this was a huge thing. Mm -hmm. But basically, in the course of this, they kind of made them Millennium compliant and then switched them on, and it, they, they went horribly wrong. So it was the, these, the faxes I talked about were just spewing out all these completely wrong sales numbers, uh, and the warehouse just, just, just combusted because the computer system was all wrong. They couldn't pay people properly. They couldn't. So, so basically, the distributor that we used went bust. That was very, very significant to us because they owed us like four months um, of money. Uh, we were owned by a Spanish company, but the Spanish company took a massive hit when that happened. So it was literally, you know, literally just when I took over, this happened. 
Uh, it was incredibly scary. I didn't know one end of a book distributor from, an, from another. Um, it was awful. And so I was basically, I had to find a new book distributor. Fortunately, the Spanish publishing company could have just pulled the cord at that point and said, well, this is enough. Fortunately, they didn't. They said, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll give it another whirl. Um, but I had to find a new distributor. Uh, we, we were talking about this the other day. But, you know, I, I, there were two who were willing to take us. And there was one that probably on paper looked like a really good solution. And there was one that didn't look so good. Um, but when we went with a colleague of mine, I was 23, she was 22. We went to look round and there was this really pompous guy. And he was like, oh, and he was kind of explaining every bit. And he said, oh, you, I'm sure you won't know anything about how this works and this and that. And he was like, we, we really took a dislike to him. He was patronising. He was really patronising. He was really sort of like, well, you'll need to talk to your bosses about this. And, you know, sort of like kind of, and yeah, it was very, he, he was just a really, and he had no sense of humour either. And I just thought, and we, he's someone we would have had to work with a lot. I was like, I just can't do this. The other one we went to see was on paper not nearly as good. They didn't have as many clients or anything like that. But the two people who ran it were both brilliant. It was a sort of, there was a kind of socialist collective in North London, turnaround, they're still around, they're brilliant. Um, and they were fun, they were approachable, they wanted to talk about the books. And it was like, well, this is a no-brainer, we have to go with them. Right. But it was such, the whole thing was such a baptism of fire, because there's no rule book of how you do these things. Of course. And am I right in saying that you still call upon that tough experience now when you're going through difficult things? I've heard you talk about keeping little notes on your phone. Oh, I got through that particular moment as a way when, when you're going through a difficult time. Go, look, I've done it then. I'll be able to do it now. I think it's, yeah, for me, it's massively important to just remind myself of like, God, I was so scared in that moment and try to remember those emotions that I was feeling at that time. And then to feel like, well, actually, I got through that and that was OK and that worked out well. Because those emotions, I think, keep coming up again and again. Yeah, they're not going to go. They're they? not going to go away. Like you're going to hit scary, difficult situations. Undoubtedly, when I go to the US, there'll be scary, difficult things. There'll be awful pieces of news I have. There'll be difficult things to do. But I do think it's one of those things in life. The more of those things you can kind of bank, and th I think it's really helpful, just in terms of resilience or something. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's like exposure therapy, isn't it? Just doing it more and more. But in terms of then managing, let's say, uncomfortable thoughts and feelings personally, even at that stage, what, what, what's your way of doing it? Um, I think I've always tried to have quite a good sort of work-life balance. Uh, it's really important to me, I think, to have enough time away from the industry uh, I th it's enough. It's important to me to have enough time away from people. In fact, so I like. We were talking about this as well. But you know, I like to. This is my, the expression I have is like I'm, I'm an omnivore. Like, like. Which is I love this. But, but, but just explain what an omnivore. Well, is. just just I worked this out during COVID because I always thought I was more of an introvert because I like to have time alone. But actually, during COVID, I went absolutely mental. Like being myself, absolutely mental. It was awful. Like, I couldn't stand it. I had one of the worst reactions of anyone I know. So what I worked out from that is I do need quite a lot of time with people, mm. but I also need quite a lot of time without people. And it's just finding that right balance. And, like, every week can be can tip one way in the wrong direction. Like, mm. if I have a week without enough human contact, then I get a bit funny. If I have a week <laughs> with too much human contact, then I get a bit funny. Yeah. I'm sure there's people who can relate to that. Like, it's just oh. getting that right balance. When I heard you talk about this, I completely 
resonated with me. Like if I don't speak to friends, even on the phone for a long period of time, it's like something's lacking. But then if I spend a week on holiday with them equally, that will drive me up the wall. So how do you then structure your life to meet both of those needs, your need for connection with people and that time alone to reflect and let things sink in? I mean, it's quite good timing we're talking about this because I was just talking with my assistant this morning about my diary and things like that. And I that was, helps, doesn't it, having an assistant? Having an amazing <laughs> assistant. I've got an amazing assistant. And, but like, I always kind of say, what, I think what I, what I like is to have about... And in publishing, you can have any number of weekend and evening engagements. I can really only cope with two or three evening things for publishing a week. Right. Uh, the rest of the time, I need to be at home or seeing friends or whatever... And weekends, unless it's like a, you know, a really important author thing, which it sometimes is, um, I like to keep weekends reasonably sacrosanct. Yeah. So, so for me, it's, it's kind of making sure that I kind of make the most out of two or three evenings a week of whatever, launch parties, publishing dinners, whatever, fun, you know, engaging, publishing stuff, um, but not going too overboard. I remember there was a London book fair I did a few years ago where I actually had six nights out in a row and I actually felt like sort of admitting myself to hospital or something afterwards because I was just so spent. I hated humanity. And I was just so thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly jaded. I was like, I, never again, <laughs> never again this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you go to work events, though... How do I put this? So before we started recording, a woman called Gail came up and you were chatting to her. <laughs> and you... There she is. And anyway, I saw you've got that skill of being able to make people feel like they're the only person in the room. Now, I'm I think we should ask Gail if she feels that <laughs> or not. Gail, what do you ask? You, I, think, I, I think he definitely has it. <laughs> okay, he's he's got you, it, Gail. hasn't he? Thank you, Gail. Now, is that something that you consciously try and, and work on in a, in a work sphere? Because obviously with friends and stuff, it's a bit different. But when you're at a workplace and you've got a, a certain status, for example, is that something that you're, you, know, you consciously work at? I, I definitely try not to consciously work at stuff like that because I think that is, 
I think that comes across. Um, I would say I'm genuine. I mean, the reason I like this business, the reason I feel well suited to it, is I really do like people. Yeah. I am really interested in people. Publishing people are really interesting, smart, you, you know, often mm. unique people. Mm. Um, so, and, and I particularly like, I have to say, I particularly like one-on-one stuff. So, and, and I'm better at it than a big group type thing. Right. So, um, that to me is joy it's like having lunch with someone having coffee with someone getting to know someone understanding what makes them tick you know like this the phone call we had i'm yeah. i'm enjoying this like yeah. like um and i wouldn't probably enjoy you know if it's a sort of bigger yeah. sort of more anonymous thing so yeah. i don't think i consciously work on anything but i do really like getting to know people genuinely another thing that seems clear to me is that you like fun and and so if we think back to that dour, patronising guy who cost himself a, a contract by you know, being a bit patronising, you chose not to work with him on the basis that you were like, well, this won't be fun. And you're, you bring that attitude, do you not, consciously into, into work. Like you want it to be fun. I, I think I could, I mean, everyone's different. I couldn't thrive in an atmosphere. Like, like, I need to look forward to coming into work, which I do. I'm really fortunate. I really do look forward to coming into work. And part of the reason for that, well, you know, one of them sitting in the room, like, you know, sort of, I like the fact that the people I'm surrounded by are fun, uh, have great energy, um, that we can have a laugh together. That is really important because at work, you go through some really miserable things, some really difficult things, some really challenging things. If you're working with people who you can't have a laugh with, who are sad, you know, sort of, not, not that people can't be sad, because we all have sad moments and we all have stressed moments and whatever, but there's something about being able to have fun with people that just, that just makes it all a lot easier and more, just, make, just, just I, it makes it more just, uh, just enjoyable and sort of, and I think you do better work. I mean, for me, I do better work when I'm... And, and I've worked with different people who I can have fun with and I can't have fun with. And I can think of a particular instance of someone I didn't have fun with. And even though that person was extremely good at their job, we couldn't work that well together. And I don't think that person had fun working with me either. And it just wasn't... Yeah, it just... We were less than the sum of our parts. Gotcha. I think if it's people who you have fun with, then you could be more than the sum of your parts. So in terms of your CEO traits, let's say... Um, I know that you're pretty self-reflective. You told me that you did a 360 and you wanted to learn about yourself. And one thing that you got in terms of feedback led to you prioritising being consistent. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Can you just talk a little bit about this and the importance of consistency for a leader? Yeah, so I had a, yeah, quite a bruising 360 years ago. I mean, I've done a few of them, but a particularly bruising one. And yeah, one of the bits of feedback that came up from several people was about how I could sort of be quite a you know, decent person to talk to. But when they came, when I was at my desk and I was working and they came and found me, I could sometimes look, I think someone said hostile. Uh, and someone said sort of miserable. Someone said angry. Like there, there were some, some quite strong words used. Um, Did that hurt? Uh, I think all good feedback hurts. Like, I think if it doesn't hurt, it's... If it doesn't hurt, then you're not... Either, either you're not a good person taking feedback or the feedback wasn't useful. So, yes, it absolutely hurt because I could recognise the truth in it. Like, it, I absolutely could. And I can have some, you know, sort of whatever resting bitch face or whatever. Like, I can't have <laughs> to that. But, like, this was, went beyond that. Like, I would... Uh, 
I, you know, you talk about flow, like I'd sort of be in the zone, I could just feel irritated. Yes, yeah. you're being pulled out of it. Yeah, and, and I could see from that that actually what was really disconcerting for people was that their experience of me was different at different times, that I could be the sort of person who was, could listen to them and stuff. And then there were other times where I would just be, what the hell do you want? Um, <laughs> so it was really profound for me in terms of like whatever, whatever I'm feeling, like I need to, I'm there for that person. And I'm in the office. When I come into the office, I'm there for them. I suppose it was quite profound in that way for me. Right. That I'm not there to be sort of like, well, don't don't interrupt me or. Yeah. So less inward looking, more outward. More outward looking, like like I, I had to be, and I had to be. I, their their experience of me had to be much more consistent. So that's uh, an example of like emotional intelligence, right? Which is Daniel Goleman obviously famously argues more important than than IQ. How hard is that, or was that to? you know be consistent at being consistent and not having that face um well i'd say it's still very much something i work on i would say when i am stressed about something i think those around me would not find me consistent and and i i do try to work really really hard on that but i am not no i don't want to sit here and kind of be like oh yeah i'm the finished article i've really worked on that really, yeah because yeah. i'm not like the other day i could catch myself and i was like I knew how stressed I was and I could see how that was projecting outwards. Right. So, but I, I hope now at least I, I know that that's something that I do. Have you ways to check yourself? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think, I think often it's sort of, sort of your own bodily reactions, isn't it? And I could, you know, see when I'm getting extra fidgety or when my heart rate's high or when I'm just feeling angry with everything because, I don't know, the coffee's not right or whatever. <laughs> so it's actually often when I feel angry at really small things. Right. I, okay, I'm really not in You're, a great frame of mind here. Okay, and I need to be conscious of that. I need to be conscious of that, yeah. To the yeah, people around yeah. me. Okay. Um, talk to me about owner mentality because this is something you've spoken about in terms of being a, a CEO, which is the opposite of micromanaging people, which, you know, as anyone who's been micromanaged knows that's a bloody nightmare yeah so so, so I, this is something i feel really strongly about and i suppose it's i suppose a lot of it comes down to having worked at a really small company when i started my career where it's you know owner mentality is really about acting as though you own every every person who works works at that company makes decisions as though they own the company whether that's whether to you know hire a courier versus send something by post or whatever sort of about cost about decision making um, to really feel empowered to m make decisions. Um, I have definitely witnessed in large companies from management sometimes a sort of, if I want a better word, nannying effect of sort of like, we make the decisions and the, let's not worry. You know, people need to ask. Yes. That, you know, there was an example of a manager I heard about, actually someone was telling me about earlier this week, who used to work in a large organisation. I think everything over a pound had to go by her for her. Wow authorization yeah, so she was like yeah that was un I think it's unnecessary <laughs> so um so I think in large organization there can be that from management and I think from people who work there then that can breed a bit of like well this is a large organization I'm just a cog in the mm. machine uh something some something if someone wants to really annoy me that they can say is like well that's above my pay grade like like I really like it when people feel they can make, not, not, not just make decisions, but kind of say to their manager, kind of, I think the best thing to do is X, is that okay? That is, I want to create an environment where you can do that, rather than the manager saying, you need to ask me what to do about this, and 
the, the person saying, what should I do? Because I've seen it again and again and again. If you have that sort of overbearing manage, micromanaging style, then in the team, then people become kind of infantilized and they just yes. don't, they, they're not in the right mindset. So owner mentality is really important to me. And also what I think happens is the hierarchy becomes really sort of entrenched, right? And, and the thing is, <laughs> we can't avoid hierarchies and mental hierarchies, if you know what I mean. And so as a CEO, someone who's been in leadership positions for a significant proportion of your working life, how do you stop that from going to your head? Because I, am, I know from having spoken to you before, to some degree, people at work might treat you differently than perhaps if they met you, I don't know, you know, at the village hall. Uh, so, well, talking in the village hall. So, so I, I live, my husband and I live in a village we were talking about this before, so I'll tell the story. Um, and, yeah, we went to sort of, there was like an event at the Village Hall. And when we came away from it, I just felt a bit like, I said to my husband, like, I think people were being quite standoffish at that event. Like, I don't know, like, I just didn't, I thought people were a bit rude. And he said, like, that is just how people normally are. That's just people. <laughs> uh, you weren't, <laughs> because you're not a CEO in this environment, people aren't sort of buttering you up. And I thought... Okay, this is. I need to watch myself because, because you do. Because people do. Uh, I think you know th- there is that there is that danger. What, what, if there's any kind of position, it's not about me personally. If, what, if there's any position involved, people positively and negatively bring all sorts of stuff to it. Yeah. Um, so I have to regularly. I mean, I try not to go too much to the village hall, but like, I have to kind of regularly <laughs> do stuff that is like, okay, and try and try to just keep reminding yourself because otherwise it becomes normal. It's like yeah. people people do change, and I know certainly when I so Alison and Busby, very small company. You know, then I moved to Little Brown, Hachette, very big company. There were people who'd never responded to any of my emails, or agents and people never responded to any emails when I'd been at Alison Bosby, never spoken to me. When I moved to Little Brown, suddenly we're best friends. So I could see it really vividly from that. It's like, oh, I didn't have much spending power. Now I've got spending power. Oh, I've got loads more friends. Mm. So I think it's really important to, to just keep reminding yourself of that and keep reminding yourself of the way people are reacting to you maybe sometimes partly to do with you, but often it's because of your position and, and that power is... power is um, Intoxicating. Yeah, and, and, and it can be dangerous, and yeah. it can be dangerous to the individual, and yeah. like, ego is really dangerous. Oh, 100%. So in broadcasting, um, which is my world, and then publishing, there's that word talent. And so talent has that implication of someone being special, right? And therefore they get treated as, as that. How do you think you know, a leader can mitigate against other people disappearing up their own backsides in that same way by having smoke blown up as if they are special? You know, because ultimately, no one's really special. Someone might be special at something, but you know, we're all on the level, really. I, I've got quite strong views about that with authors, actually. Yeah. That I think sometimes publishing can treat authors like these sort of. Uh, treat them with kid gloves and kind of be like oh you're so special we're having a big cakes party for you and you're wonderful and here's a cake with your face on it and like kind of like we've all been there and etc etc and I'm not saying we shouldn't do that or lovely authors of a shit um but 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 I think it is a partnership and and the way definitely I when I was an editor and publisher I tried to work with authors is like this is a business partnership I'm here to sell as many of your books as you can you are a you know creative genius. 
and let's work together to, to, to sell lots of books. Um, and, and it can mean some quite hard conversations sometimes because sometimes an author might have a strong view about something and I'll think, well, actually, that won't, we could sell more books if we didn't do that thing. Mm, mm. Um, but I definitely always prefer... We, I, I think we sometimes create... Uh, issues by by treating authors in a certain in a certain way rather than treating them as business partners, which is what I think yeah. the, the relationship is at its best. Um, you touched on it there, deciding what not to do. And people often say that you know the art of really getting ahead is is knowing what to say not to. So, what advice would you have in, in that sphere in terms of identifying what's really important to do to get ahead? And, you know, what isn't cutting away the chaff? So people aren't just, for example, you know, spending all their time on email or, or whatever it may be or scaling that up to leadership roles. Um, it's a really good question. I think it's different things for different people. I would say I, I think a big thing for me has always been about questioning stuff and being unafraid or making myself, and no, because I say being unafraid, I am afraid because I am a people pleaser in lots of ways. So I am always, I am actually afraid to question stuff, but I kind of make myself do it often. Um, and I think that is a really important thing. I think in organisations, I do see a lot of the time people do things because their bosses ask them to do it, or because you know, and because they they want to be good. I think. For me, a lot of the best things that I've done have about being saying no to people. Not, not saying no to people, but questioning, saying, do we really need to? I don't think that's going to add anything. I'll give an example. In a previous role I had, there was a department that I just didn't think was adding any value. And I could kept, kept talking about it and saying, well, I don't think this department is adding value. I don't think it's adding value. And it made me not very popular, maybe. You know, so it wasn't a very nice thing to be doing. But actually, I think it was really valuable because we ended up with the department doing a lot of better, more useful work. Um, so, so, so I think don't always feel that you have to say yes. Often saying no is very powerful or challenging something. Um, also, I think be, I, I, you know, again, maybe a cliche, but sort of make your diary work for you rather than you working for your diary. I'm amazed how often people are like, oh, God, I was just had this meeting and that meeting and that, that meeting. I, I think... I think actually being really kind of as ruthless as you can be in terms of your diary as much as you're able. And again... It, How would you do that? Um, so I, I have quite a sort of rigid thing about, like, I like to have time in between meetings. I try not to do meetings. It doesn't always work, but I try not to do meetings back to back. Like, I do do a lot. It's publishing, so I do a lot of lunches. I don't like to do a really rushed lunch because I don't think you connect particularly well. If you've got a rush lunch, and I've been at lunch with people where they're just checking their phone. I had lunch with someone who had another lunch after my lunch with him. <laughs> I, like, I sort of like, um, I kind of, I, I think, um, yeah, so, 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 so for me, even again, maybe if it sometimes makes me unpopular, it's about really making sure that when I look at my diary in the morning, it doesn't freak me out um, and that I do feel I've got the time to do everything properly and, and, yeah, and I, I think also thinking about my other piece of advice would be about thinking where you've got the maximum impact. There's so many things you can be doing. What are the things that are really going to have the maximum impact? Um, to what degree do you think success is synonymous with happiness? And are you happier as a CEO and with your new job coming than you were when you started out, uh, you know, as the dog's body at 22 or whatever? Um, for me, a lot of happiness, not happiness, happiness is maybe the wrong word, uh, contentment or something is about or freedom. 
I definitely feel, so if I put it this way, I feel as a CEO, I have a lot more freedom than I did as the dog's body. I, and they've done studies on this as well. The more people I think you have in your life at work telling you what to do and how to do it, you know, there was a woman who, you know, who told me, who stood over me when I was what, making tea to start <laughs> with and like, said, damn boy, you've got, you're doing it all wrong. Like sort of, I'm definitely happier now than that because, because I have fewer people, I, supp- I suppose. Yeah. And, and then so, uh, tell, t- telling me what to do, that's, in, that's kind of important to me. And I suppose I feel more, I'm happier when I feel kind of creative and I feel I can create something and being a CEO for me, the joy of it is about creating stuff and building stuff and kind of seeing it all fit into place. Yeah. And I feel I can do a lot more of that. I would say there have been periods in my career where I've been immensely happy. When I was an editor doing crime and thrillers, I had my own little world, which was me, the designer I worked with, Sean, I'll name check him, um, and a sales a few salespeople uh-huh. and Sean and I would he would do the covers I would I would do all the copy and stuff that obviously we, the, the books and then we'd get sales to sell loads of copies like that was a blissfully happy time for me and I think it was because it was a really creative time and it was because no one else was that was our space right um so so am I as happy now as I was then I don't know maybe that was the most happy or was, <laughs> but, but I, I tend to be happy in situations where I can be creative where I can shape things okay uh, last few things, because I'm, I'm slightly conscious of time. You said earlier, you, you talked about your impatience. How good are you at enjoying the moment, at enjoying being present, doing what you're doing, versus always thinking, okay, what's next? What's coming up in the future? Um, I try to be in the moment as much as, I can, as possible. I'm quite, I do quite enjoy kind of gaming things out and thinking if this happens here, then what happens there? Like, I, I like that sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, just sort of strategic strate- thinking. That, that sort of strategic <laughs> thinking, for want of a better word. Like, I do enjoy that. Um, but I'm always, I, I'm always, I think, most happy when I'm just like in the moment of a business issue of like, yeah. what's happening? In the flow. In the flow, yeah. Yeah, and I think you can have flow in business. I know yeah, it sounds sound very corporate, but you can, you can have flow. So that, 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 that is when I'm happiest, when I'm doing that. How much of your identity is bound up in the fact that you are a CEO? What if it was all stripped away? How would you deal with that? Um, I've got enormous a number of eccentric hobbies and interests, which I won't go into. <laughs> um, I would like to think I'm really conscious. I've had really great mentors before, David Young, Ursula McKenzie, great mentors of mine, um, and they have retired and they're, they're no longer CEOs. And I've seen them go from this journey of being a CEO to being a person, doing, you know, doing their shopping and probably in Waitrose, but like doing their shopping. <laughs> but like, um, kind of, uh, and, and that's been really, really, and they both handled it brilliantly. And I really, it's really important to me actually to have this. And I've got a lot of, I try to maintain a lot of sort of interest, friends, everything outside publishing and outside being a CEO and stuff that is in no way connected to position or status or whatever. Actually, that reminds me of when you disappeared up the mountain and your husband was stuck ill, wasn't he? And you went up the mountain and you got the perspective. Tell that story, that's a nice one. Oh, no, just, just, um, so my husband and I were on holiday. Um, He was ill, uh, so normally you go hike. We love to go hiking. He couldn't go hiking. I went by myself and it sort of went up, snowing. It sounds sort of too ridiculously idyllic to be true, but like (laughs) up this snowy mountain, kind of stood at the top, it was in the Alps, stood at the top of the mountain, kind of looked over... Uh, it was safe. It wasn't. I didn't have to do any climbing or anything. Um, and and just felt this sense of like 
there's something about mountains and the sea, I think. There's like mm. things that are much bigger than you. Yes. I was like, it just helped me kind of have perspective about everything that's going on at work, about being a CEO, about yeah. whatever sort of business things are going on. And like, this is, there's something, there's something bigger and more yeah. important. And that, that stays with me in terms of perspective. Yeah. You can recall back. I can recall back when I'm going through something difficult at work. I think about Take yourself up like, to the, the being at the top of the mountain. Like, wow, there's this. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of bigger stuff out there yeah. than this. Publishing is important, but it's not that important. It's not that important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same as pretty much all jobs, right? Um, right. Last thing, for anyone who was, let's say, an aspiring CEO who, you know, was impatient, ambitious, what advice would you have for them, and what are the pros and cons? Would you say? Uh, my advice would be stick at it. Like resilience is massively important. It's like one of those long distance races where you just see people drop out all the time. Yeah. And often it's not necessarily the best people who remain, and I'm not the best person, but it's the most resilient people that remain. Or the people who've stuck it out the longest, frankly, who haven't gone to teacher training or what, you know, journalism or a thousand other things. So I would say be prepared for, you know, to be really resilient. Um, don't think. Don't think because you can't see anyone who's like you that you can't do that CEO job. I think that's really, really important. I think publishing... Is that speaking from experience? That is speaking from experience. But, I mean, obviously I'm a white man, so sort of I have seen lots of other white men and like, I can see that publishing urgently needs to, you know, become more representative at all levels. So I would urge... And I think things are changing, and I really hope they're changing. I think I would urge anyone who wants to get into it not to be put off by the lack of role models, because I'm really conscious that we don't have enough uh, role models in mm. all di different sorts of ways at the top of publishing. Don't be put off by that. Um, and don't be afraid to be yourself as well. Like I think as, as well, you can be a whatever, a quirky I feel like, you know, like, you can be a quirky person, you can be an unusual person, you can be an introvert, you can be a whoever you, you don't need to fit some sort of mold to, to be a CEO but you do have to be really you do have to stick with it um, and 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 try to be try to be yourself as well I see too many people I would say who want to be CEOs try to try to um, affect a slightly different way of being and that okay. that I don't and, think and lose works. an authenticity and lose an author lose authenticity in the process and the people who are really good leaders in my view are the people who are most authentically themselves so I think just really, really hold on to that. Whoever you are, that's what, that's what I think people gravitate to. It's not a particular sort of person. It's someone who's just themselves. And do you have to love what you do to get there? Is, does the love of, in your case, publishing books, the, the business, doing those spreadsheets, top five bestsellers, blah, 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 um, does that come first ahead of the ambition? Yeah, I think you have to love it because otherwise you don't have the resilience. Like, 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 like you, you, you wouldn't stick at it. Like, I wouldn't have stuck at it if I didn't love, if I didn't essentially love this industry. So I think you do, I think you do have to love it. And if you don't love it, it's probably not right for you. Okay, very last question, because uh, I know we've gone over, but um, this, it, this is about AI. So we're gonna go off a right tangent. Oh God, yeah. Just quickly, how worried are you about the impact that AI could have on authors and publishing more broadly? Um, I'm. Worried is probably the wrong word, but I think it's really imperative for there to be really good legislation in place to protect uh, creatives and the creative industry. Um, I'll give you an example in Korea, South Korea. There are tables in bookshops um, of books written by AI. 
um, and that's being embraced in that market. Wow. So um, AI will be able to write books, obviously taken from the creative content from our authors, which it's illegally taken. Um, so, but th and that is going to happen, but there can be a good legislative uh, framework in place that means that creators are protected um, and that there's transparency as well about what is an AI written novel, what is a non-AI written novel. This is the same, by the way, for, for music's having the same art, everything. Um, but but to, to, to my mind, this is something like copyright. Copyright is something that isn't a God-given thing. It was governments put copyright in, and that is to protect creators. And copyright needs to be updated to take account of AI and to make sure that human creators um, continue to have all the rights that, that, that they have had and that AI-created material isn't the same. Writing's an art, though. Could AI write a classic? I don't think either of us can answer that question. I know that AI can do things very, very plausibly. And when, when uh, the public are asked what was written by AI, what was written by a person, they often can't distinguish it. So I honestly can't say could AI write a classic, but it could certainly use classics that people have written and write something of its own that people might yeah. not to distinguish. Interesting. Well, listen, David, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming on the Life Lessons podcast, and I hope you all enjoyed uh, listening to David's words of wisdom. Thank you for listening to this conversation with David Shelley. It really was a lot of fun chatting to him. And the thing that will really stick with me amid all his CEO lessons is that sense that I share with him of being an omnivert, of really finding ways to balance the deep need for both connection and solitude. Do let me know if that resonates with you too. I'm sure it will with lots of you. I'm at Simon Mundy on social media or do get in touch via my website as per. A big thank you and good luck as well to David and also thanks to the cracking team at the Future Book Conference. It was a lot of fun and thank you to you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.